So just starting with Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on angels' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And just moving on to Romans, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come to you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness and not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. A few years back, my sister was visiting her in-laws in Tasmania. They lived about 45 minutes from Devonport, and it was their, their last night there with their in-laws. The next morning, they were going to be boarding the spirit of Tasmania and heading home. And so they were, they were taking things easy, you know, getting ready, ready for bed, when my sister just thought, I'll, I'll just double-check the boarding time on the ticket to board the ferry. And as she checked the ticket, she realised that they'd misread things. And instead of leaving the next morning, they had about an hour to get to the ferry before the boarding closed. And suddenly what was going to be a quiet, relaxed evening changed in an instant. Now, my sister and her husband are quite funny to watch when they're flustered. Hopefully they'll never listen to this, but it's true. And so part of me wishes I could have just been there to see this because I can just imagine my sister suddenly realising, and she tends to overreact, although it's pretty hard to overreact to a drama like that. My brother-in-law tends to get exasperated and highly hysterical. It would have been hilarious. And in my imagination, I can just see the two of them running around like crazy, gathering all their stuff, saying hurried goodbyes to my um, brother-in-law's family who really don't appreciate dramas like this. I can imagine them jumping in the car, and getting out of there all in the space of 15 frantic minutes. One minute, it was a time for putting on pyjamas and and taking it easy. The next minute, they saw the time completely differently. It was a time for action. 
We've been going through Paul's letter to Romans as a church for about a year now, on and off for about a year. And in these last few weeks of looking at Romans, we've seen that in many ways, this last section has been all about reading the time right. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul wrote, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul says we'll understand the action we need to take right now in the present as we look back at God's mercy shown to us in Jesus. The past shapes our present. But today we see that reading the time right is not just about understanding the past, it's also about understanding our future. Look at verse 11 again, where Paul tells us to read the time right in light of our future. He says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Getting the time right is critical for how we should live right now. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a minute because just before Paul tells us to understand our present time by looking to our future, he continues telling us to understand our present by looking back to God's mercy. Remember, Paul's been telling us how God's mercy drives us to live a life of worship to God. And last week, we we saw just one of those ways that we're driven to worship of God. We saw in verse 7 that we're to give to everyone what we owe them. And today, Paul continues this idea. In verse 8, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding. And by this, he's not saying that we can't have a home loan or something like that. He's saying, make sure you pay what you owe. We need to make sure we we pay our home loan repayments. We need to make sure we pay all our bills. We we shouldn't be the kind of people that tradies have to constantly prod just to get paid for the work that they've done. Or if you're a student and you've got a a group assignment, you should never be the kind of person who who just sits back and lets the rest of the group carry you. This This is a mindset that Paul's talking about of not being a user of people or a user of governments. Now, that was Paul's point last week. This week, though, he says something more. He's saying when it comes to how we relate to each other, to brothers and sisters, Paul says there's one debt that we will never pay down. He writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. You, me, all of us have a debt to love one another. We owe it to each other to love each other. Now, how do you, how do you feel about that? How do you, you feel about this debt? I hate opening the, um, the banking app on my phone uh, where it tells me my net financial position. Does your banking app tell you that as well? Basically, mine says something like this. Your net financial position is minus a ridiculous amount of money and it probably will be for the rest of your life. It's hardly motivating to have that there. It's, it's, I don't feel inspired by my debt. Paul is telling us here our net position. And he says it's a debt to love one another, and it will be for the rest of our lives, and 
for all of eternity. Now, maybe to us, that doesn't sound inspiring. Maybe to us, that even sounds hideous. In our culture, the idea that love could be a debt is is a sort of sus idea. It's restrictive, repressive even. In our culture, love should be free and it should flow effortlessly from my heart or otherwise it's not love. And so really I should surround myself with the kind of people I love to love because in the end that's what's best for me and it'll be best for them in the end too. But love that's obligated in our culture, well that's seen as twisted. It's twisted love because if I must love then I'm probably not being true to myself. Now these are some of the kinds of of things that you hear in our culture, you know, things like you prune people from your life, you prune people who don't let you be your most authentic self. You don't owe it to them to love them. If anything, you owe it to yourself to cut them off. But Paul unashamedly says to those of us who love Jesus, no, you owe it to each other to love each other. So let's make this a bit more real for a second. Picture one or two people in church that you find the most difficult to love. Don't name them out loud, that won't help. (laughs) Just bring them to mind while I ask you a couple of questions. So have you died to yourself and given your life to Jesus? Well, then you've signed up to love his people. Have you signed up? to join in on Trinity Church Campbelltown in a few weeks' time. Well, you've signed a mortgage to love. Have you signed up to Trinity Church Modbury? You haven't literally signed anything, but if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, you've signed a mortgage to love. But here's the thing, you know, as challenging as that is, when we have a clear view of God's mercy then we see that this isn't hideous. It's actually beautiful in a a gutsy, gritty, real kind of way. And in one sense, our culture doesn't get this. But at the same time, it's not without parallels. You know, most people think that if you become a parent, you have a debt to love. Most people get that that we have a, a debt to our children to love them. And as much as you might be tempted to look at your kid and think, hmm, I might just write that one off to experience and see how it goes with the others, it just doesn't work that way. We, we all get that family means that there's a debt to love. We get that. So do we get what God is saying to us here? In our church family, we have a debt to love. And it's not a debt that ever goes away. We owe it to each other. We're called to be a community of genuine love. And like Jesus shows with the story of the Good Samaritan, that kind of love of the other overflows beyond this community to just anyone we come across, whether they're like us or not. But here of all places, we're to love because we're family. We have a debt. But it's not the kind of debt that sucks the life out of you. You know, if a family where everyone is deeply committed to each other, genuinely loving each other, those kind of families are not life-sucking. 
They're empowering. They don't hold each other back. They, they actually hold each other up. And that's the kind of community that God's mercy has shaped us to be. Paul goes on to give us the reason why we owe this to each other. He says in verse 8, Love one another, for whoever loves has fulfilled the law. And he's talking about the Old Testament law, which can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then look at verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says the summary of the law, of what God requires of his people, can be summed up itself in just one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as we love one another... We really can fulfill the law as Jesus saves us. He transforms us to be a community where the law reaches its goal, its purpose. Look at verse 10. He repeats this idea. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And as you read this, what you see is that Paul actually gives us two principles that give the shape to love here. On the one hand, love always steers clear of harm of the other. It never crosses that boundary. You know, love pushes away from harm. But if that's all there is, something's still lacking, don't you reckon? You know, if I don't murder you, have I loved you? Well, sort of. <laughs> it's a little bit half-hearted. It's the bare minimum to do no harm. It's love. It wouldn't be loving if I did murder you, but surely there's got to be more. The other principle gives us even more to the shape to love, and it's radical. Love is to show the same natural concern that we have for ourselves to others. And loving someone as yourself, it pulls love to, to new heights. Paul tells us here that love always walks hand in hand with these two principles. Never harm on the one side and always committed to their well-being as if it were my own on the other. And when we walk hand in hand with these two things, Jesus enables us to go beyond the letter of the law to the goal of the law. Now, we've already seen in Romans that in this life we do this so imperfectly. You know, one minute we're loving people and we're fulfilling the law in that sense. The next minute sin is there and we blow it. We've seen now that life really is a struggle between the Spirit leading us to love and our own sinful desires pulling us down again and again. But one day... One day love really will be effortless, free, perfect. And it's to that day that Paul now draws our attention here. Because like I said before at the beginning, to know how we ought to act right now, we need to know what time it is. And he tells us in verse 11, he writes, and do this, live a life of love, understanding the present time. And what is the present time? The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day 
is almost here. Do you see what time it is right now? We live in in the exact same time that Paul lived in, even though it's 2,000 years later. We're actually caught between two times. You know, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. We live in two times, but we belong to only one. Now, in other words, Paul is saying we're on the cusp of something. We find ourselves in one era, but Paul's point is that we belong to another. One era is almost over and about to disappear forever. The other is moments away from sweeping this world and its coming is inevitable and irreversible. Right now we live in this world of, of sad, sadness and sickness and warfare, which all ultimately stem from sin. But at exactly the same time, if we belong to Jesus, we might live in this dark world, but we belong to the world that's coming. The world that Paul describes as our salvation. When I got back from holidays a few weeks ago, I, um, I decided that I was going to embrace being a disciplined person. Chocolate was out. And if you don't count the last week, I was doing amazing. But the other thing that I, I've, I've been doing is, is trying to exercise every day at 6.30am. And that's been going pretty, pretty all right. And the final thing I've been doing is, is trying to get up at 6am to read the Bible and pray. And I've been managing to do it all right so far, but I'd be lying if I said it was easy. And the reason it's so hard is because 6am is an incredibly difficult time of the day. Have you ever experienced it? It's awkward. Every morning the alarm goes off at 6am and, and my day begins with a tug of war. My body says to me, nah mate, it's not daytime. It's obviously nighttime. It's dark. It's quiet. You'd be an absolute idiot to get out of bed right now. Now I hope this struggle, that this struggle would kind of diminish over the weeks. It has a little bit, but still it's there. But thankfully so far my mind has been able to say to my body, yes it's dark. Yes, it feels like night, but day's coming. It's on the cusp. And going back to bed might feel easier, but it's not going to hold back the day. And if you go back to bed, Stephen, you're going to miss reading your Bible, you're going to miss exercising, and you're going to miss psychologically preparing yourself for the onslaught of your children getting ready for school. And so at 6 a.m., what do I do? I get on with reality. I tell myself to embrace the day, and I do. Because at 6 a.m., the day is pretty much here. You know, there's no use me putting on my clothes, putting on my shoes, and then hopping back in bed. There's no use going for a jog, getting all sweaty, and then snuggling back in underneath the doona. That's not right. It's kind of gross. Paul here is reminding us that the Christian life is is like that 30 minutes from 6 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. It's twilight. It's awkward in a way. Part of us is saying, isn't it, what are you doing, mate? Go back to living for yourself, you fool. And part of us is saying, no way, the day is coming and I belong to Jesus now, so that's how I'm going to live. And you know, the day that's dawning is not like just another ordinary day. It's more like your wedding day. The day that's dawning is when Jesus returns when sickness, sadness and war 
and sin will disappear forever. Uh, I don't imagine too many people sleep in on their wedding day because they're finding it hard to wake up. They embrace the day. And Paul here tells us, yes, it might feel like night right now. This might feel like night. But it doesn't make sense for us to live like we belong to the night. It makes sense for us to embrace the day that is surely coming. And he tells us what this looks like. Have a look at verse 12. He says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Life for us, it's not found in partying, getting drunk, sleeping around. Life is not about arguing with each other or being jealous of each other. Life for us is all about Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Life is about Jesus. We're so united to Jesus that we see he really is our past and our present and our future. Clothed in him, we have forgiveness. We are righteous right now in God's eyes. And so we get on with living the kind of righteous life that he wants us to live. As we commission Trinity Church Campbelltown today, we need to do it understanding the time. Our lives don't exist in living for pleasure. Our lives don't exist in our houses or our renovation projects. Our lives don't exist in career or money. They don't exist in sporting glory or sporting mediocrity. Our lives don't exist in our kids even or keeping them happy. Our lives exist in Jesus and so we get on with living already for the day that's dawning. Right now we live in the twilight, which means we've basically got 30 minutes before the day begins, right? We've got about 30 minutes to wake up others and to tell them about Jesus before it's too late. We don't know the exact moment that the day will break, but we do know for sure that it's coming and it's the very next thing in God's plan. If we understand the time right, then we'll understand what kind of churches we should be. Modbury, Campbelltown, not sleepy ones, wide awake ones, waking up others before it's too late. Anything else would be misreading the time. Now that's true, what I've just said. And it's especially important for us today as we commission Trinity Church Campbelltown. But it's actually not Paul's point here in this part of the letter. His point here is to make sure that we've heard that a wide awake church is one that loves one another and leaves behind destructive ways of living and embraces living for Jesus. So I want to finish by, by asking how are we going at this? How are we going at loving one another? And I'm going to speak really to Modbury, but Trinity Church Campbelltown, maybe file some of this away to say how will you go in some of these things? And so the first thing I just want to say in, in how we're going at this is that 
there's heaps that's great in this community. Like someone said to, to Kathy, my wife, the other day, what they love about this church is that we're a church that loves people of all ages, young and old. And being the minister, I get to hear all sorts of stories, stories like meals being made for people, lifts being given to cataract surgery, old people giving young people lifts to community group. We've got different cultural backgrounds that have come together here, different social backgrounds, different education levels, different theological beliefs on some things, different ideas about politics and different ideas about how to approach COVID even. And yet through it all, we have people loving each other here. Keep it up. That is a remarkably beautiful and wonderful thing. But I want to encourage us to keep thinking through how we can go deeper. See, the truth is that until Jesus returns and that day fully dawns, we'll keep getting sleepy in these kind of things. There's a risk. There's a risk that our love will disappear or I reckon a bigger danger is our love will become superficial. There's a danger that when we come together that we'll just be nice to each other. Love's not nice. It's kind, but it's honest. It's gentle, but it's truthful and it's committed, but it's not superficial. So I want to maybe just shake us up a little bit, shake us awake a little bit in a couple of areas where we're at risk of getting sleepy. So can I ask you, how committed are you to your church family here? What about when people aren't here? You know, there are some people who are staying away at the moment because of COVID and their health or the health of their family. There's some people that aren't here for other reasons. How many of them have you contacted to see how they're going and to let them know that you miss them? You know, if one of my kids wasn't at the dinner table for three nights in a row, do you reckon I'd find out how they were going? I'd hope so. I rang someone the other day and they said I was only one of two people to ring them in a couple of months. And I'm not patting myself on the back because it's my job to do that. So really only one person rang them out of love. I think we can do better than that in loving people, don't you? Love notices not only who's here but who's missing and love reaches out. Here's a, another way I reckon we're in danger of superficial love. To what degree does our love last beyond these walls? To what degree do we go on loving each other beyond Sundays? Are our lives open to each other? Or are we giving a filtered version of our lives to each other, an Instagram version? Now, I fully recognise and, and we need to recognise that you can't open up your life equally to everyone in a church this size. Even Trinity Church Campbelltown as it starts, it's too big to love each other deeply on the same level as everyone who's there. But what we mustn't do, therefore, what we mustn't do is, is, is love no one and effectively hold everyone at arm's length or love those who are like us only. You know, that's why community groups are so important to us in the life of our church. They bring people together who are different. They're a smaller group of people who you can love on a deeper level than, than you can on a Sunday here. But still, even here, love shouldn't be superficial. 
you would have heard that expression that goes, good fences make good neighbours. And in many ways, our society has gone to town on this idea, you know, of creating private spaces, personal sanctuaries that, that hold out the world. Fences have literally become higher over the years and, and homes have become more like fortresses, fortresses. But I want to challenge us just a little bit and ask, are we also living by that motto? Because good fences might make nice neighbours, but they don't make loving families. Are we regularly opening up our homes and our lives to each other? We can't be people who fence each other out literally or emotionally. We need to be real with each other. What are your fences? You know, what, are, what are the things that are too sacred for you to open up to your church family? Is it your time or your image or your struggles? Is it things like your home or your dinner table, your weekend or your family? Do you hold people at arm's length and keep love nice, but not deep? Are there some fences that you need to work on bringing down? Another way we're at risk of superficial love is the way that we handle things when we find someone difficult to love. Often what happens when we clash with someone is that we walk away from a church or a community group or a ministry. Sometimes it's not even a clash. Sometimes we just walk away because it's not uplifting me or the people there are not energizing me. But what happens when we wake up from that kind of living and we go on loving in those difficult situations? Not being a doormat, but loving honestly and with commitment. I'll tell you what happens. We clothe ourselves with Jesus. We take up the weapons of light. We live as those who belong to the day. And often something else happens as well. We find ourselves discovering surprising joys and blessings. Now, don't hear me wrong. Love doesn't mean being a doormat. It often means calling stuff out at times. But it then means persisting with those people. We need to keep remembering that, that we have a debt to love as family and you can't trade in family or write them off to experience when it gets tough i read a little while ago that a parent of teenagers needs to learn that um, you need to stay calm and kind and available no matter what the teenager might be doing he used an analogy you know the teenager might be thrashing around on one end of the rope you need to sort of hold the rope steady and calm on the other side a little bit like fishing, but a whole lot less enjoyable, I take it. And it seems to me at times, though, that that's not just what it takes with teenagers, but with all family members, staying calm, kind, available, even when they're not. And it seems to me there are times when we need to be like that for each other here as well. I reckon very often we miss out on some of the great blessings and joy that come from deeper love because we hold ourselves back from love. Or we hold people at arm's length. And, and we do it because we're thinking that's what's going to be best for us and most sustainable. I was chatting to Kathy about this through the week, actually. And I, I said to her how things, uh, even things like hosting young adults at our place is an example 
of something that's, that's a great blessing to us, a surprising blessing to us, even though it's hard work. And, and Kathy said to me, I don't think that's a good example because it's not really hard work. Uh, but here's the thing. It is hard work, especially for her. I pointed this out to her. She works all day on Wednesdays and then she comes home and has about 12 people in her house. It involves her cooking for it sometimes. It involves tidying up and helping the kids to be prepared for it. Most week, it, it involves her washing up till late in the kitchen. And she says it's not hard work. Why? And you would have things in your life like this too. Why? It doesn't feel like work because she loves the people. And she loves God. And there are the surprising joys like the kids seeing the next generation live for Jesus. My point is, this is so often what love is like. So often when we love, it is hard work. But there are so many surprising blessings and joys. Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's disappointing. It's always a debt. Sometimes it feels like a debt. But it is a debt with joys and blessings all the time. And when we hold back from love, not opening up our lives to each other, not opening our literal lounge rooms, not serving each other, not caring, not ringing, not listening or driving or cooking or praying or forgiving, then we aren't living out who we are. We aren't living out who we will always be for all eternity. We aren't reading the time right. And we're missing the thrill that it is to live for the day that we belong to, the day that is dawning. Let me pray. Father, in view of your mercy shown to us by Jesus dying in our place on the cross and rising to be our Lord and Saviour, in view of the day that he is bringing, the day that is already dawning around us, help us to see the time right, that this is a time for clothing ourselves with Jesus, putting our trust and our hope and our future in him, and taking his lead on how we live our, live our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would live as those who are indebted to each other to love each other. Not in a, a bound, oppressive way, but holding each other up. Help us to be a community of amazing and deep commitment and love to each other. That mirrors our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lord, on our own, we realize we are incapable of this. But we know your spirit is here amongst us and we pray, Lord, that he would do his work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.